Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, speaker, Pastor Steve Finninger, teaches from John chapter 8 in the series, Portraits, Jesus, Who Are You? You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Kahana mobile app. I might have mentioned this before, but uh, one Saturday morning last summer, there was a knock at our front door, and I opened it to find two well-dressed, middle-aged ladies standing there on my porch, and they politely introduced themselves to me, and uh, then they offered me some literature that they said would help me understand the life of Jesus and also his plan for the world, and uh, I thanked them, and I said, well, you, you should know that I'm, I'm already a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And then I said, you should also know that I believe that Jesus of Nazareth was God in the flesh, and I worship him as my Lord. And they flinched a little bit when I said that, and they replied, well, we teach that Jesus was the Son of God, but not God. And I said, well, you do understand that Jesus claimed to be God, right? And they said, oh, no, no, Jesus never claimed to be God, just the Son of God. And I said, oh, my. I said, it's all over the Bible, especially in the Gospels. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He who has seen me has seen the Father, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. I said, you realize it's why they had him killed, right? They accused him of blasphemy for claiming to be God. Well, things got a little tense there on my front porch. And the ladies finally looked at each other. They realized I wasn't going to be a very good prospect for them. And they started to leave. But before they did, I managed to to say this, I said, ladies, I am pleading with you to give careful and serious attention to the Bible and to the words that Jesus spoke and especially to who Jesus claimed to be because what you believe about that really matters. It matters a lot. So in fact, one day you're going to stand before a judge and that judge is going to be Jesus. In that moment, you're going to wish above everything else that you believed in this life what he had to say about himself. And that pretty much ended the conversation. And they walked away kind of shaking their heads. But it is true, according to God's word, what people believe about Jesus' identity matters a lot, both for this life and for the next life. So we've been in this study, haven't we, of of the Gospel of John, and the author's been showing us that the things Jesus was saying, the claims he was making were getting him into some hot water, getting him in trouble, especially with the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. So much so that back in chapter 7, we saw this last week, it says that they sent officers to go and arrest Jesus while he was teaching at that big festival in Jerusalem. But when they got there, the officers were so mesmerized by Jesus and by his teaching that, that uh, they didn't grab him and they came back to their handlers empty-handed. And they said, look, no, no one ever spoke like this man. We've not ever heard anyone talk like this man is teaching. 
And that didn't set well with the Pharisees. And they continued to scheme and plot how they could have Jesus arrested and basically how they could have him disposed of and be rid of him. And so now, today, as we come to John chapter 8, this confrontation is really heating up. And we, we see there's a definite change in Jesus' tone here. It's like the lines have really already been drawn. And he just kind of lays into the Pharisees with a, a series of stinging indictments. Of course, that just made a matter, right? Just infuriated them even more. So I want us to see how this unfolds. If you haven't pulled the study guide out of your worship folder, go ahead and do that now so you can track with me this morning. This chapter, John chapter 8, kind of breaks down like this. First, we're shown a living illustration, a story that shows us that grace, forgiving grace, is the foundation for holy living. That's the first 11 verses. And that's followed by this very bold declaration that Jesus makes when he says, I am the light of the world. That, of course, was objected to by the Pharisees who make kind of this blanket objection. And they basically say, you can't say things like that. (laughs) And that led to a, I believe, an intentional and deliberate provoking of the Pharisees by Jesus in which he increasingly draws a contrast, a distinction between he and them, he and his detractors, and also between he and his phony fans. We see him contrasting several things, his origin with their origin, his judgment with their judgment, his destiny with their destiny. He contrasts his relationship with God, the Father, with their relationship with God, his notion of freedom with their notion of freedom. He talks about his father and then he talks about their father. And most of all, he talks about his identity versus their identity. And that leads to this This climax, this murderous culmination, verse 59, in which the Jews attempt to stone him for committing blasphemy. And again, the central issue in all of this was Jesus' identity, beginning with that statement, I am the light of the world, which the Pharisees did not appreciate at all. And later, as things are heating up, they just kind of yell out at him, Jesus, who are you? Who are you? And then after Jesus told them that that everyone who keeps his word will never see death, they lash out at him, who do you make yourself out to be, Jesus? Modern translation, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are saying stuff like this? So this was the watershed issue in Jesus' day, and I believe it's the watershed issue in our day as well. Who do you think Jesus is? this chapter, Jesus leaves little question as to who he believed that he was. What people need to decide is, do I agree with Jesus on this? Or do I think he was delusional or deranged or worse yet, demon-possessed? The implications of someone's answer to that question are massive. They're huge. Jesus, who do you think you are? I want us to see at least... 12 answers to that question coming from his own lips here in this chapter. And don't get nervous. I'm only going to spend a minute or two on each one, so don't worry. So let's dive in. And first, we see Jesus portrayed as the gracious forgiver of sin and the empowerer for holiness. This story of Jesus' 
and the woman caught in the very act of adultery. And we, we Christians love this story, don't we? We love how Jesus dealt with this woman so tenderly and so graciously. We love the image of Jesus flustering her accusers by bending down and riding in the sand. We love Jesus, how he made him squirm when he said, Hey, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. We love hearing in our minds the thud of the rocks dropping to the ground as her accusers sheepishly walk away one by one. This chapter opens with an account of this story, but there's a problem. Your translation likely puts it in parentheses or leaves it out, or there's a footnote at the bottom of the page that says something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Do you have that in your Bibles? So what do we do with that? Honestly, I wish I had time to, to just go into the fascinating field of textual analysis and textual criticism. I don't have the time. But you do need to know a few things about this. First, this story, this account, falls into a category that is called disputed texts. Disputed texts. You also need to know that the sum total of all of the disputed texts in the New Testament amounts to only about a half a page. And not a single doctrine of the Bible is called into question or impacted by any disputed text. The few disputed texts that do exist... Say, how did these come about? Well, let's say you had one of Paul's letters and you wanted to make copies of it. You couldn't walk down to the copy room and, you know, put it in the Xerox machine. They didn't exist. Copies were made by scribes hand-copying things. And on occasion, a scribe would make a mistake or maybe write something in the margin that would get included in later copies. And that's how this came about. And so you're saying, Steve, you're shaking my confidence a little bit in, in God's Word, but I, I need you to understand this. The manuscript evidence for the Bible far surpasses the manuscript evidence for any other writing of antiquity in both quality and quantity, whether you're talking about the Odyssey or the Iliad by Homer or the writings of Josephus or Tacitus, contemporaries there. The Bible smokes all of them. There's more manuscript copies near to the time of the original writing than any other writings of antiquity. And so we can be confident, I hope you'll join me in being confident, that we do hold in our hands the very Word of God. Then lastly, while most scholars believe that John did not originally include this story in his biography of Jesus, they nevertheless believe that it, this incident actually happened, that it actually did occur. And it's the main point of the story is corroborated by scriptures. And what is the main point of the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery? Is it not that Jesus forgives sin by his grace? And also that it's his forgiving grace that's the foundation for living a holy life. What did he say to the woman? Woman, where are your accusers? They're all gone. Neither do I condemn you Go and sin no more. And the order, the sequence there is very important. He didn't say to her, look woman, you better stop sinning. And if you do manage to quit your adulterous ways, well, then I won't condemn you. He did not say that. He said, I don't condemn you now. Go live a godly life. That is gospel truth. 
Forgiving grace is the, the motivation, the foundation, the incentive for living a holy life. Do you understand that? It's huge. So this story, likely not a part of Scripture, but nevertheless occurring, reveals Jesus as the rest of Scriptures do, as the gracious forgiver of sin and the one who empowers us to live a godly life by His grace. And that is who Jesus is. Amen? But He's more. Verse 12, He said to the people gathered around Him, I am the light of the world. Number two, He is the light and He is the light giver. He said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It was this declaration that prompted this whole conversation with the Pharisees and, and really widened the rift between them. I am the light of the world, he said. And this statement harkens back, doesn't it, to chapter 1 where John wrote, In him was life, and that life was the light of men, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I am the light of the world. Think about light for a minute. I got four bright lights shining on me right now. What does light do? Well, light reveals the truth, right? Light exposes us. It reveals the truth about reality. It shows things as they really are. It chases away darkness. Jesus was here saying, in essence, if you follow me, you'll be close to the light and you'll start to see things as they really are. You'll see the truth about God. You'll see the truth about me, Jesus was saying. You'll see the truth about people, about each other. You'll see the truth about life and death and heaven and hell and eternity. I'm the light of the world. This was really quite a claim. Think about the light. Some people are attracted to the light the light of Jesus, but others are repelled by the light, right? They don't want to get too close to the light for fear that they're going to be exposed. It doesn't feel good to be naked and exposed in the light, and some people choose to stay away from Jesus because of that. And so in his statement here, like many of those that he made, he presented people with a choice, didn't he? Stay in hiding, remain in the dark, stay in concealment, or come out into the light and see the truth. Your choice. Can you handle the truth? Jesus would say, if so, come to the light. I'll show you the truth. So He is the light. Then it becomes apparent in this conversation, Jesus is also claiming to be the judge, the righteous judge. Back in chapter 5, he'd already said that his father had entrusted all judgment to him. Here in this chapter, in verse 26, he looks at these people and he says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. And um, he sure does. In fact, I counted it up and I see here nothing less than a 17-point indictment of the Pharisees. And I'll give them to you. Ready? Here we go. Here's what he said, you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. You know neither me nor my father. You will die in your sin. You are from below. You are of this world. My word finds no place in you. You do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is not your real father. You're seeking to kill me. You do the works your father did. The devil is your father. You cannot bear to hear my word. 
Your will is to do your Father's desires. You do not believe me. You do not hear God's words because you are not of God. You have not known God. You are all liars. Yikes. How would you like to be in Jesus' crosshairs? I sure wouldn't. He had been the one who was being accused by them, but now the accused turns the tables, doesn't he? And he starts to levy charges against them. What was he doing? He was rendering judgment on a cynical and unbelieving group of people who despised him. And he is the righteous judge. Then we see that Jesus often in this conversation portrays himself as the son of the father, the submissive son. Yes, Jesus spoke a lot about himself and his identity, but always with a view towards honoring his dad, right? always with a view towards honoring his father. Without question, Jesus of Nazareth claimed that he was the unique son of his father, not Joseph, but God, God in heaven. And in this chapter, we learn a lot about Jesus and his father, don't we? We learn that he was sent to earth by the father, that he and the father together execute judgment, that he was validated by the father who bore witness of him. Do you remember? This is my son in whom I am very pleased. We learn that he speaks the truth that he heard from his father, that he enjoys a closeness with his father, that he always seeks to please the father, that he receives glory from the father, and that he jealously seeks the father's honor. Father and son, son and father, father and son. You cannot read the book of John without feeling like there's something very special about this relationship between he and his father. And he says things like, if you knew me, you would know my father also. My father is with me. He's not left me alone. I don't seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks it. You do not know him, but I know him. Something very mysterious here, very special, very sweet, very unique. He's the unique son of the father. Listen to me. You cannot honor God while dishonoring Jesus. That's what I wanted these Jehovah's Witness gals to understand. You can't say, oh yes, I I honor God, we worship Him, but I, I put Jesus on a lower level. You can't do that. He and the Father are one. The Father and the Son are one. You get this? So here in John 8, Jesus is staking out who He is, right? The forgiver of sin, the empowerer of holiness, the light of the world, the righteous judge, the Son, the submissive Son of God, His Father, And I love this one, number five, the crucified Savior. The crucified Savior. Listen again to his words in verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, remember he's talking to people, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Problem is in the original there's no He. Then you will know that I am when you've lifted up the Son of Man. We've seen that language before. Lifted up, lifted up. Back in chapter 3, do you remember this? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We saw back then that that was a reference to the posture of crucifixion. Right? Lifted up. And so again, Jesus here is not only predicting his death, but he's predicting the manner in which he would die. 
which in a very few short months would be carried out by the will of the very people he was talking to here. When you have lifted up the Son of Man. But I thought about this. How, how is it? He says, when you've lifted me up, then you'll know that I am. How is it that they would then know who he really was when he was lifted up there hanging on the cross? And I thought about it. I thought, well, could it be because the heavens go dark for hours? And they go, oh, okay, this is different. <laughs> or when he was hanging there, there was an earthquake that would rock the whole city and shake open the graves. Uncle Herbert, I thought you died. Do you think maybe then they started to realize something was going on here? Or was it when they would see the, the veil in the temple, the four-inch thick veil in the temple ripped from top to bottom without human participation in that? Is that what got their attention? Or maybe as they saw him there hanging on the cross and his mysterious cry, It is finished! Maybe that would awaken some of their dead souls to who he really was. Would it be then that they would realize, oh no, we crucified the wrong man. We crucified our Messiah. As we see elsewhere, Jesus here is once again saying that his kingship is going to be rejected. It's not going to be accepted for the most part. It would lead to his execution, and his death wouldn't be by stoning. You know, several times it says people picked up stones to start to stone him. But he's saying, no, my death's not going to be by stoning. It's going to be by being lifted up, suspended in the air like that bronze snake in Moses' day, so that all who look to him in faith would be cured of their poisonous sin infection, and they would live. They would live. That's good. Thank God for Jesus, our crucified Savior, risen Lord. He cures our sin disease. And it would be his death and his resurrection that would enable him, number six, to be the great liberator of slaves. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You've heard of the great Emancipation Proclamation by President Lincoln? Well, here's the ultimate Emancipation Proclamation. Jesus, our ultimate freedom fighter. Somebody might ask, set free? Set free from what? It's kind of what the Jews were saying. We've never been slaves of anybody. Boy, they have a short memory. They were slaves at that moment under Rome. What's wrong with you people? Set free from what? Well, Jesus was talking on a spiritual level, wasn't he? And I see two things in this passage that he intends to set people free from, the slavery of sin and the bondage of lies, of believing lies. Jesus Christ intends to liberate his people from enslavement to sin, and sin is indeed enslaving. Do you know that yet? From your own experience or the experience of others that you know? Sin is enslaving. But we humans think we can dabble around with sin and play with it like it's some sort of pet that we can domesticate and tame and train to entertain us. That's a lie. That's a lie. Sin is not a tame little house pet. Sin is a monster inside of you. 
that will overpower you and make you a slave if you let it. Do you really think you can just play around with pornography? Really? Without its hooks getting into your soul? Do you think you can dabble in the occult and in the paranormal and not have it impact you? You think you can just fantasize about sexual encounters? You think you can let anxiety take over? You think you can just give full vent to your anger and rage? You think you can feed your ego and keep your pride at bay? Do you think you can engage in these activities and control them and stay a free person? If you think that, I, I, I just want to say think again. A man who would know wrote this in Proverbs 5. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast by the cords of his sin. Cords? Yeah, sin has cords. It binds and enslaves and dominates. The monster has an appetite, and it will not be satisfied. Last week I was out in Las Vegas pretty cool. I got to spend some time with my physical dad and my spiritual father on the same trip out there. And I was on the shuttle on the way back to the airport, and there was a guy sitting next to me with a t-shirt on, and it said, City of Sin. And the graphics around the text were obviously celebrating the freedom that people think they have in being able to do whatever they want to do out in Vegas. But it's a lie. It's a lie, isn't it? You've heard the quote, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It's true. It's true. I hope you know that. Many of us could testify to that from firsthand experience in our lives or in our families. But here's the problem. We all sin. Every one of us. Non-Christians sin. Christians Still sin? So who is stronger than sin? I mean, who can free us from sin's penalty in God's sight, which is death and hell and eternal separation from God forever? And who can free us from sin's domination and power in our lives now, which if, if it's left unchecked, will ruin our lives and our marriages and our families and our relationships and who could deliver us from, from sin's very presence since it's woven into the very fabric of our being and what it means to be a fallen human being? Who can deliver us? And Jesus stands in front of that group of people and says, I can. I can. I do that. I specialize in liberating people and setting people free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free from sin's penalty? He was saying, by my soon death on that cross, where I will absorb in my own body the judgment and punishment that you deserve for your sins, I'm going to take your place, I'm going to be your substitute, and release you from the penalty of sin if you'll believe in me. And from sin's power, I will deliver you by my Holy Spirit living in you, giving you new desires and new strength and new power to say no to temptation and yes to my spirit. And one day I will deliver you from sin's very presence when I recreate your body and this whole world to be sinless. 
Praise God for that. I'll deliver you from sin's deception by revealing to you the truth and ultimately sending the father of lies to the lake of fire where he belongs. And I want to see that. I want to be there for that. Jesus is the slave liberator, the freedom fighter for us. Praise God for this. He's also the truth teller, number seven, the truth teller. My testimony is true, he said. How many times did Jesus say verily, verily? (laughs) Which means what? Truly, 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 truly. I'm telling you the truth, people. I am the truth. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth. I've told you the truth that I heard from God, he said. I'm telling you the truth. He is the truth teller. Jesus will never lead you astray. And he's the devil denouncer, number eight, the devil denouncer. He looked at the people and said, you're trying to kill me. But you're just, you're just doing what your father's been trying to do for millennia. The devil is a murderer from the beginning, always has been. And he's a deceiver, and he's a liar. There's no truth in him. It's interesting, he says, when the devil lies, he speaks his native language. <laughs> he's just a liar. Just, he's the father of lies, conceiving deceptions every day. Jesus would say, to rob my father of his glory and to enslave people. And Jesus would say, don't listen to him or those who speak for him or those who are possessed by him. Listen to me, that's what Jesus would say. And then he's the heart exposer, number nine, the heart exposer. How would you like to be standing in front of Jesus and him reveal to everybody else what's in your heart? Here's what he said to those folks. You don't love me. He looked right into their heart and he said, you don't love me. You can't bear to hear my word. You don't know God. You are not of God. Laid bare by the piercing eyes of Jesus, the exposer of men's hearts. Jesus claimed to be all these things in this one conversation. Number 10, he also claimed to be the the promiser of life. The promiser of life. If anyone keeps my word, he said, he will never see death. Now, many of you know that the Bible speaks of two deaths. We call them the first death and the second death. We're most familiar with which? The first death. It's what we observe at every funeral that we attend. First death is when the human spirit vacates the human body. When the spirit departs from the body, we call that dying. And what's left is a lifeless body, a corpse. But you know, the Bible says that's a temporary condition. The Bible says that all human bodies will be resurrected one day by Jesus, and then body and spirit will be reunited in such a way that everyone will be able to fully experience eternity. Some in everlasting life with God in heaven, and others in the second death. Revelation 20, 14, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Pastor Steve, how do I know where I'm headed? Well, it's very clear in the Bible. Those who in this life are given eyes to behold Jesus Christ 
and see him for who he really is and who believe that he was who he said he was and trust in his atoning sacrifice and put their faith in him are born again. Amen? I know of six people just in the last few weeks who have become born again through you, through the ministry of this church. Born again. Believers in Christ. Amen? It's a wonderful thing to have everlasting life, be promised everlasting life, and miss the second death. But you know what? There are those who never behold Christ for who he really is, don't believe. They miss out on the second birth, and they will die, and then they will die again. So all who are born only once will die twice, but those who are born twice will die only once and maybe not at all if Jesus comes back. I want to be in that group, don't you? I want to be in that cohort group that misses death altogether. This is what Jesus claimed. This is what he pledged as the promiser of life. Well, two more identity claims in this amazing chapter. Number 11 Jesus said, I honor my Father. He is the God glorifier, the God glorifier. And we've seen it, haven't we, again and again. Jesus was particularly jealous that his Father be honored and revered and held in high regard. And I love this about Jesus, don't you? He loved his Father and and he honored his Father and he demanded that people honor his Father. And that has many implications for us, but one of them is this, that Jesus honoring his Father serves as the basis for him calling us to honor our fathers. I'm just going to throw this in there. Are you honoring your dad these days? Are you honoring your father? Even if he's passed on, are you honoring his memory in your own heart and mind and to other other people? There's a lot I could say about that. There's a lot you could say back to me in response. I'm just, I want to just hang there. Are you following Jesus' example in honoring your father? Look again at how this scene now closes. Verse 51, Jesus speaking, group gathered around him. They're agitated, they're upset. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me. My Father, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. You're just a young pup. And you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. At least they got what he was saying. My Jehovah's Witness friends may not get it. 
Your friends at work may chafe under this, may not believe it, but these Pharisees, despite their many issues, many problems, got this right. They understood what Jesus was claiming. You say, how do you know? Because of their response, they picked up stones to stone him. You see, Leviticus 24.16, back in the Mosaic Law, states that the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. And so, saying that you're God, if you're not, was punishable by death. So they understood what he was saying. Many people in our day don't, but they got it. You see, Jesus was here claiming for himself what? The name of God, that revered and holy name that God himself had given to Moses. Recorded way back in Exodus chapter 3. Do you remember this? Moses being sent on mission to Pharaoh to liberate the people of God. And he says, you know, if they ask me who's sending me, who shall I say is sending me, Lord? And God says, tell them this. Tell them, I am who I am is sending you. In the Hebrew, that's Yahweh. English letters, Y-H-W-H. English speakers have inserted vowels through the years. It's also been transliterated Jehovah, Yahweh, the personal name of God. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he was saying, I am Yahweh. It's my name. Notice he didn't say, Before Abraham was, I was, which would have been a stupendous enough claim, a claim to be over 2,000 years old. But he didn't say that. He pushed tense and language to its limits when he said, before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternally pre-existent one who lives in the eternal presence. I am Yahweh. I am God. The God you've been claiming is your God. It's me, and I live outside of time. I can always say I am. But I humbled myself and I entered time so that you might be awakened to the truth and have grace and salvation and forgiveness and freedom and eternal life if you'll believe. But of course, their minds were already made up, right? They'd have none of it. What was their conclusion about Jesus? Before Abraham was, I am. Their conclusion? You're possessed by a demon. You are filled with Satan. Listen, there's no hope for someone like that. There's no hope of salvation for somebody like that. In my view, that is the unpardonable sin. To have the very Son of God in the flesh... God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, standing in front of you, performing all these signs that we've been seeing every week, speaking the truth to you, and you brilliantly conclude you're possessed by a demon. Seriously? That's your conclusion? There's no hope. There's no hope for that person. But there is hope for us. Amen? There is hope for us. Hopefully, your conclusion about Jesus of Nazareth is far different than their their conclusion. Hopefully, you are one who has come to the light, who has been pulled out of the darkness so that you've been given eyes to see the truth. The truth that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. 
Hopefully you see Jesus as the one who was lifted up for you on that cruel cross, who took that judgment that you deserve and that I deserve, that we deserve for our sins. That he stood in your place, he substituted for you. He took the wrath of God, the just and holy wrath of God that we all deserve. He took it for us. Hopefully you are one who believes that and is born again and forgiven by the grace of Jesus and have eternal life and freed from the guilt and penalty of your sins and avoid his judgment and miss the second death. Hopefully as a born-again believer, you're experiencing freedom from sin's power in your life in increasing measure as you yield to the Spirit who lives in you, who wants to live out that Christ life. All the while anticipating that day when you will see Jesus and be done with sin forever. No more sinful flesh, no more temptation, no more enticements from this world. It's going to be a good day. When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. You become what you behold. And we're going to behold him in all of his glory one day. And I say, come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. (laughs) I'm telling you, Jesus is so much more than maybe you ever realized. He's so much more than that little flannel graph figure that maybe you grew up with in Sunday school. One-dimensional. You know what? There's still lots more to learn about him in this unfolding drama that was faithfully recorded by John the Disciple. And So I encourage you to make sure you're back next week when we get into John 9. All I know is I once was blind and now I see. (laughs) Well, bow with me, would you? Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.